So we are planning to work our way through the entire book of Revelation and not, not just the first couple of chapters and these seven letters to the churches. But we are in, obviously, this section with the seven letters to the churches. If you've heard preaching on the book of Revelation before, there's a fairly good percentage chance that you've heard it on chapters two or three, uh, as preaching on the seven letters is, is quite common and dropping off after chapter three is also quite common. <laughs> by, by God's grace, we'll get there. But we are in chapter two this morning and we're looking at the first of the seven letters that Christ Jesus writes uh, to the first century churches listed in verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. By way of reminder, as we just noted, the book of Revelation, and these seven letters in particular, were not written to you. They were written to the seven churches of the first century in the seven cities that I just mentioned. But that being said, as I told you last week, though this book as a whole and though these letters were not written to you, they were nevertheless written for you. As Joel Beakey says, when we read Romans, we don't say, this has nothing to do with me, but only to the church of Rome 2,000 years ago. Yes, Romans was written to the church at Rome, but it also applies to believers today. That is true of all Scripture, including all the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. So today, as we continue studying Revelation, which was as a whole written to the seven churches mentioned in chapter 1, and contains within the whole seven specific letters to the specific first century churches, let us remember to heed what we are reading and hearing, because although it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. This is a book that God wants us to read and understand and profit from. We would do well, then, to note verse 7, which will be repeated as a refrain over the next couple of chapters. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, with that in mind, we will need to discern what was going on in the first century Ephesian church in order to make sense of what Jesus is saying to these guys and thereby profit from his commendations and from his rebuke. So let's explore a few possibilities of what may have been going on in Ephesus at the time of this letter of Christ Jesus to them. First of all, the works of the Nicolaitans. I don't know. <laughs> and frank, frankly, to be honest with you, I don't think any of the commentators do really know. Um, there, are, there are some strong suggestions of what it probably means, but I, I don't think anyone's really made an airtight case for exactly what's going on. Um, we see the, the Nicolaitans mentioned again in um, chapter 2 and verse 15. He's right into Pergamum and he says, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And there it's connected with the uh, teaching of Balaam and food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. And then those concepts are, are repeated again in other letters. And we're not sure... Frankly, I don't think exactly what the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. 
John Gill has the most specific suggestion. And he says that it comes from a misunderstanding of the early deacon Nicholas, who, who said, quote, in Greek, abuse the flesh. And, and apparently what, according to early patristic sources, apparently what Nicholas meant by that was basically like restrain, mistreat, um, as Paul says later in Corinthians, I beat my body and bring it into submission. I think what Nicholas was saying was that, but some people misunderstood it to mean indulge in and misuse the flesh. Whether that is true or not, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I, I simply don't think that we're given an airtight case. Obviously, whatever it was, it was evil. It was a doctrinal error, which led to immoral living. And so specifically what it was, I, th I think to some extent is going to be a bit of a moot point for us in the 21st century as there's nobody who is consciously Nicolaitans nowadays. So with that out of the way, obviously what we see the main thrust of Jesus' rebuke in Ephesus is that there is some kind of deficiency in love. But this I have against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or you have abandoned your first love. There's some debate about whether the translation should be the love you had at first, or your first love. If it's supposed to read your first love, then the indictment seems to be that the Ephesians are doing all the right things and indeed loving their fellow man, but their love for God has grown cool. That's the first possibility of what this letter intends to chastise the Ephesian church for. But let's examine that a bit more closely. Is it possible that the Ephesians are outwardly doing all the right things? No, that's not allowed by the text. Look at, if, look at Revelation 2.5. Christ instructs the Ephesians to do the works that you did at first. So obviously there are works that they are not doing. And that is related to this deficiency in love. Because it's part of their repentance. Is it possible that the Ephesians are truly loving their fellow man and yet not loving God? Again, no. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So it is not possible for the Ephesians to love one another with a love from God without also loving God having been born of Him, and knowing Him. The epistle of 1 John teaches us that love for God and love for fellow man always go together. You can never do one without the other. So Jesus cannot be rebuking the Ephesians for loving their fellow man and doing all the right things on a horizontal plane, but simply not having their love for God in place. However, neither can he be rebuking them for going on in love for God, but failing to love their fellow men. 
Again, the epistle of 1 John teaches us that love for God and love for fellow men always go together. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So the possibilities are excluded. That either the Ephesians love their neighbors but not God, or that they love God but not their neighbors. Both of those possibilities are excluded. Therefore, neither of these things are what Jesus is rebuking them for. And as I alluded to earlier, let me make it a little more explicit now. Jesus cannot be chiding them for doing the outward things correctly, but simply from a wrong motive, i.e. a lack of love. And the reason that that cannot be the case is because in Revelation 2.5, Christ instructs the Ephesians to do the works you did at first. So there are things that they were doing which they stopped doing. And that's connected to their lack of love. And so it's simply not the case that they were outwardly doing all the right things, but their heart was wrong. And that's what's being corrected here. All of these aforementioned possibilities of what may have been going on in Ephesus are commonly taught in this section of Scripture. And yet, I don't think any of them can be correct because of what we just examined, what we just looked at. Let us consider then, as far as I can see, the only possibility allowable from the text concerning what was really going on in Ephesus. Have you ever met someone who is anti-woke or anti-liberal or anti-conservative or anti-Pentecostal or anti-Calvinist or anti-gun control? Or anti-gun. Or whatever else. And it seems really, really clear when you meet and when you speak to this person. It's clear and it's evident what they are against. And yet, their life seems to be basically just a complex exercise of negating and confronting that which they oppose. Pretty much all they do is negate and confront that which they oppose. That's where their passions are. That's what they're doing on Facebook. That's what they talk to you about when they talk to you. That's what they talk to everyone else about when they talk to them. When they're alone, they watch YouTube videos explaining why the things they're against are wrong. And they load themselves and they arm themselves and they recharge themselves with all the ammunition to go again and to negate and to confront what they oppose. Notice that here in this text, Jesus commends the Ephesians for what they hate but says that they lack love. Notice, however, that he acknowledges that they used to love. And notice that they are doing a certain kind of works, as Jesus commends them in verse 2, for their works. I know your works. And he says that in a positive way. And yet Jesus chastises them in verse 5 for having neglected the works they did at first. So they are doing a certain kind of works, which is good, and yet they are omitting another certain kind of works, which is also good. They hate stuff, which is good, but they fail to love stuff. They omit loving stuff. It is possible to be born again and to, be, to truly and to sincerely love God and neighbor. And to recognize that part 
of loving God and part of loving neighbor is to hate that which is detrimental to God and to neighbor. As Matthew Henry says, quite poignantly, and this ties in well with our Fruit of the Spirit study, an indifference of spirit between truth and error, good and evil, may be called by men charity and meekness, but it is not pleasing to Christ. And so, you're truly born again. You sincerely love God and neighbor. And you recognize that part of loving God and loving neighbor is to hate that which is contrary to God and neighbor. And so you embrace the concept and the practice of confronting sin and error. You embrace the concept and the practice of not bearing with those who are evil. As Jesus commands the Ephesian church for not doing in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil, Jesus says approvingly. And you embrace the concept and the practice of exercising discernment and exposing falsehood and hypocrisy. Again, as Jesus commands the Ephesians for doing in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, saying, you have tested (coughs) those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them false. Good job! You embrace the concept and the practice of patient endurance in the face of much opposition from the kingdom of darkness as you wait for the return and the vindication of Christ and His people. As Jesus commands the Ephesians for again, twice in this chapter, verses 2 and verse 3. And your resolve not to compromise is commendable as the refusal to grow weary in opposing error and evil was commendable in this early Ephesian church. As Jesus comments here, you have not grown weary. Jesus commends these guys for all this, everything, all of this. And yet it is possible in spite of all this, in spite of embracing all this and adopting a lifestyle which includes and accounts for all this, It is possible, in spite of all your zeal to oppose error and evil, and much that is right and correct about that, it is possible nevertheless to get swallowed up in the negative and polemical aspects of the Christian life. You get consumed by proclaiming what Christians are against. And you get consumed by resisting what Christians are against. And your mindset and your disposition becomes basically and fundamentally pugilistic and combative. You wake up with thoughts of war morning by morning. And bedtime is just a break from the fight. You genuinely love God and neighbor. That's why you fight. 
If anyone says, why are you making such a big issue of this? You say, because I'm concerned about truth and error. And, and someone says, well, why are you concerned about truth and error and good and evil? And you say, because error and evil are harmful to people and I love people. And they're dishonoring to God and I love God. You love God and neighbor sincerely. That's why you do this. But though you genuinely love God and neighbor, the positive and the pleasant feelings and dispositions and actions begin to wane. Where is the joy in God's presence and in His good gifts? Psalm 16:11. In God's presence there is fullness of joy. 1 Timothy 6.17 God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And yet it is possible to become so agitated, so disturbed, so angry about the remaining error and sin in the world that these things are constantly clouded over in your sight. And you're constantly just lamenting like the psalmist. My tears are my pillow. Where is the joy of having been forgiven of your sin? It's good to wage war against your sin. But now you only battle and war against your remaining sin and lament it. Instead of also rejoicing in and resting in the finished work of Christ as you once did. Where is the joy of seeing others forgiven? Or where is the excitement at the tantalizing possibility that those who disagree with you now and disagree with God now and resist God now and oppose God now might be granted repentance and might have their sins pardoned and forgiven and one day you might sit beside them in the pew and partake of the Lord's Supper together. Where is the excitement about that? Now you're just like Jonah going around proclaiming a message. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And should God pardon, you're disappointed. And you're angry. Nineveh had, Jonah had begun to long for the day that Nineveh was overthrown so deeply and so profoundly that when God spared them, he was upset. I knew you would do this, you know, because you're a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And when you sent me here, I knew this was going to happen. Jesus said, There is joy. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It is possible to become almost reluctant to rejoice in grace and mercy and to celebrate it and to prefer the preaching of hellfire and brimstone. You come to church, man, you're just talking about the cross again, man. Grace, 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 grace. That's all we ever hear. Where is this guy's backbone, man? Tell us about sulfur raining down from heaven. 
You're like the sons of thunder. In Luke chapter 9, we want to call down fire upon your enemies. Instead of feeling like Paul did in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. It is possible to genuinely and sincerely love God and neighbor and realize that hating and opposing and fighting and confronting is part and parcel of genuinely loving God and neighbor and yet to get so swallowed up in it such that you're reduced to basically and mainly proclaiming what Christians are against and resisting what Christians are against Someone in the pew beside you gets 99% on an examination by God of their growth in holiness. And instead of being like, hey, good job, man, you're really growing in the Lord. See the evidences of grace in your life. You're like, why only 99? In other words, Though these aspects of the Christian life, like hating the teaching of the Nicolaitans and not bearing with evil men and so forth, though these are part and parcel of a healthy Christian life, they're right and necessary in their proper place, it is possible to act as if the sum total of the Christian life is these things. And in committing that error to substitute the part for the whole. And find that the positive and pleasant and joyful and loving aspects, other, other ways of loving aspects of the Christian life are neglected. And over time, over time what happens is that your hatred for what is erroneous and evil grows. And yet your love for what is true and good wanes, shrinks. Your intolerance of those who are evil grows. Sorry, did I say your tolerance? Your intolerance. Your intolerance of those who are evil grows. But your love for God and neighbor wanes. The negative swallows up the positive instead of being balanced as two sides of the same coin. And Christianity over time morphs into a love-deficient exercise of disproportionately emphasized hatred and opposition to what is evil and erroneous. Something like this is what seems to have been going on in Ephesus. 
As Robert Mounts writes in his commentary, every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. It seems probable that the desire for sound teaching and the resulting forthright action of excluding all imposters had created a climate of suspicion in Ephesus in which love within the believing community could no longer exist. Or I might, I might not state it quite so strongly. We might say something like, a climate of suspicion arose in which love within the believing community began to become overshadowed. After all, these Ephesians were real believers. And real believers do love. Those who do not love are not real believers, according to 1 John. So it seems too strong to say the Ephesians didn't love at all. But they had certainly waned in their love for God and neighbor and needed to correct the problem. This fits this text and it fits all the other texts which might inform us. That there was a love they had at first which came to be overshadowed and eclipsed by the hatred that they were developing for error and sin. To the point where they just became lopsided. And they were the sorts of Christians who were always against something. And were neglecting this, this positive side and the positive duties of the Christian life. So what does Jesus tell them to do to correct this problem? Joel Beakey puts it memorably. Remember, repent, and repeat. Which is basically a paraphrase of the first half of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. Repeat. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I remember well the early days of my Christian life and the joy and the zeal which was attached to those days. Perhaps perhaps you do too. In my case, I remember there was a particular young woman in our university fellowship who would rise for for prayer at 5 a.m. every morning. And often after our midweek meeting of our University Christian Fellowship, a handful of us would still be at that young woman's house to join her for 5 o'clock prayer the next morning after our University Fellowship time formally ended and yet we just sat and talked about the things of God all night long. They say, well, it's time for 5 a.m. prayer, and then we better go about our day. And sin was so abhorrent to me back then. I remember struggling with pornography, as so many young men do. And being so fed up with it that I, I, went, and, I went and stood on the bridge and threw my computer into the river. Christ... Christ was so sweet to me. In those days, Christ was so sweet to me. And to have fellowship with Christ 
was the obvious and overarching goal of my life. And I wanted to pursue that fellowship with Jesus at all costs. Misguided in my zeal, but zealous nonetheless. I once sold almost everything I owned so I wouldn't be distracted by material possessions. <laughs> there was absolute delight in God and in God's people. I would skip class. I almost failed a whole semester of university because I would just skip class to just talk with people about the things of the Lord and try to evangelize and whatnot. In many ways, I have grown and I've matured in Christ. But in another way, from what height have I fallen? What am I doing now? I have become more doctrinally clear, such that I realize now how unnecessary it is to sell everything and detach from worldly possessions. And how ineffective throwing a computer is in a river to actually deal with a heart problem. And I've become so adult-like at prioritizing my life's responsibilities that I cannot afford to stay up all night and talk about spiritual matters. But is this gain? Well, in one sense, yes, it is gain. The best way to respond to a, a sermon about recovering the love we had at first is not to leave here and go become irresponsible and fanatical <clears throat> such that we default on the long-term commitments and responsibilities we have. The, the picture of the truly mature Christian life is not the picture of someone who is flaky and irresponsible and not dependable and is one minute here, one minute there, impulsive, no self-control, no commitment, no diligence, no follow-through, etc., etc. So in one sense, yes, it is gain that I've matured and grown and seen that I need to apply myself to things long-term instead of just a, an unsustainable flash-in-the-pan moment of pop and sizzle, which you, you just can't keep up over decades. In one sense, yes, that it's gain and I've matured and I've grown. But in another sense, there's loss. The love I had at first for God and for God's people was, in a very real sense, I think, more passionate than it is now. As a young man and woman marry and grow old together, the love deepens and matures and changes and grows, ideally. But many would say that there is something about young love that is wild and passionate in a way that, the, that a settled love of many decades often is not. But in an ideal world, in an ideal world, wouldn't it be nice to have both? And in Christianity, couldn't we passionately love God and neighbor our whole lives through, well embracing correct doctrine and long-term responsibilities and follow-through and so on and so forth? Couldn't we still just feel like 
What a thrill it would be to stay up all night and talk about Jesus. How wonderful it would be if we could find a way to fit in 5 a.m. prayer with the saints. Wouldn't it just be so good if we could do that? Man, I do have a few days of vacation left. Maybe I could burn one or two of them and, and like meet with another brother who's on vacation and we could study Ephesians together. Like the things we used to do. As it applies to our sermon today, if you've become bogged down with battles and with patient endurance of the Christian life, and, the very, and you've become very polemical and pugilistic in your disposition and in your lifestyle. Remember the old days when you didn't know which way was up doctrinally. You had no idea what being a priest after the order of Melchizedek was. You heard about the doctrines of grace and you thought, what? Jesus saves sinners? What are, what are the doctrines of grace? That's about all I know. Back in the days when someone asked you, are you, are you pre-millennial or all-millennial or post-millennial? And you, what do you mean? What is that? Back when you had no idea what you were talking about. You just knew you loved Jesus and that the Bible was good to read and study and learn. Remember the old days when you didn't have such a clear idea who the bad guys were that you needed to warn naive sheep about. Because you were one. Back in the old days when you were, maybe were scrolling through Facebook reels or something and heard someone like Joel Osteen, like a broken clock that's right twice a day, say something good and you were like, man, I heard this powerful thing today. Some guy named Joel Osteen, man. It was rich. <laughs> Remember back to those old days when you had no idea what was going on. But how delighted that you were in the cross of Jesus. In the simple and basic idea of substitution that Jesus died in your place so that you can be saved. And how it moved you to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then you sang that subsequent verse. Grace has brought me safe this far and grace will lead me home. And you felt it in your bones like I have no idea how I'm going to make it. I don't know the first thing about being a Christian. But I do believe that grace will lead me home. And you just had, like we read about earlier in the service, again, the providence of God and just the subsequent scripture readings. The childlike faith. To just say, man, I don't, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. But I know my Redeemer lives. Or as I, that little reminder I got from my son a couple months ago as we were doing family worship I said something like, well we don't know what tomorrow holds he said but we do know who holds tomorrow <laughs> amen and we should have a simple trust in God we can remember those 
we love God. And we just love being around the saints. And in those early days, if you were like me, saved a little bit later in life, when you got around the saints, in contrast to your previous companions, each and every one of them seemed thoroughly holy. Like you came into church and you're like, whoa, these people are something else. This is a whole other world. And you talk, you talk to like any of them. You know, and it's like, wow, these are, these are spiritually minded people. These people are serious about the Lord. These people are holy. And you just, you just felt like, I got to be around people like this. How much you love them before you brought out the microscope at some point and started inspecting each and every one of them with close scrutiny and finding all the faults and all the blemishes that are latent in, in every one of us. Remember the old days before you brought out the microscope and how you just loved the Lord and you loved the saints and everyone just seemed so holy and you loved them for it. You saw how the grace of God was at work in their lives and just believed that simple, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember the pure joy in God and in His people. And repent. Remember, repent. Repeat. Remember, repent. Turn from this imbalance then that you have embraced. Where almost all you can see and almost all that consumes you is sin and error. And turn your eyes upon Jesus again. Look full in His wonderful face. Get alone with God. Open your Bible. And look like you used to look adoringly upon Jesus. And listen, you're going to hear me not say this often. But sing like nobody's listening. <laughs> like that plaque that you see posted. You know, dance like nobody's watching. Sing like nobody's listening. Pour out your heart and worship to God. Like the old days. <clears throat> Consider the church, often called Zion in the Old Testament Scriptures. Listen to Psalm 48 and verse 13. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation. Note that it is required of us in the Bible not only to let judgment begin with the house of God. but at times also to consider the strength and the beauty of Zion. To note well the strengths and the wonderful things about the city of God. Figuratively representing God's people. Repent therefore and aim to rebalance your affections and your disposition. Embrace not only the hatred of that which is evil, which you ought to do. But embrace also love for God and His people. Remember 
afresh that love you had for them in the beginning, for, for Christ and for His people. And repent and turn from them from the imbalance and get back to that love for God and His people, that simplicity. And as Joel Beakey says, repeat, do the works you did at first in the language of Scripture. Repeat is a good way to, to make it memorable. Remember, repent, repeat. Perhaps get fed up with sin and go throw your computer in a river. Perhaps. Let yourself get carried away talking about the things of God until you have to go to work tomorrow with no sleep. Or plan to attend a 5 a.m. prayer meeting. Or do whatever it was for you when your love for God and for God's people was stronger than it is now. Don't settle for being so mature in the faith, so doctrinaire and so discerning, that you fall into patterns of coolness and disinterest in your positive relationship to God and to God's people. And so that your Christianity becomes just a negation and an avoidance of that which is evil and untrue. And it's reduced to just a shell, what it used to be. Just as you'd probably love to feel, those of you who are married, just as you'd probably love to feel with your spouse like you did when you first met and rekindle some of that fire. Likewise, long for the old days of the faith. When your heart was warmer toward God and toward God's people. And if you're at a stage in your marriage where things have cooled off, just like taking her on a date back to where you first met her, or setting, setting the table beautifully, putting that old song on that you used to listen Back in that time, back in that phase, back in that era. Just like doing stuff like that and going and doing the old things would be likely to help rekindle the fire in a marriage. So it seems that Christ understands how we work psychologically. The kind of beings that we are. Where sometimes you go and you do the old things. And you reminisce about the old things and the old days and the old times. And you recreate that environment and that atmosphere. And it helps get your heart back to where it used to be. It seems that Jesus remembers our friend. And he knows that we are dust. And he says, remember and repent. And go, go back and start doing the things you used to do. Back in those days. When there was fire there. It is good to do the works of battle, to toil, and to patiently endure. It's good not to bear with those who are evil. It's good to be discerning and to test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and to find them false. It's good, again, to patiently endure. It's good to bear up for Jesus' sake. It's good to not grow weary in all this, and it's good to hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which Christ also hates. 
But Christianity is more than just hating the right things. Christianity is also loving the right things, the right way, the right degree. So if you find that over time, you become known and characterized more by what you hate than by what you love, or more precisely, who you love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Correct that imbalance. And repeat. Do the works that you did at first.